years. This Sunday looks a little bit different because we're focusing very specifically on uh, some missional um, values and also a missional event that uh, Ashley's going to share a little bit more about later. But why don't you extend your hand toward Ashley? Just extend your hands towards her. God, we just thank you for this powerful woman of God. We ask that you would just fill her up with your Holy Spirit. Lord, even as she has words on a page, we pray for just, God, your heart, even just the, the tone and just the, uh, every, the inflection, God, in her words would just be drenched in your Holy Spirit, that we might receive your heart through what she's prepared this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, and the whole church said, amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Peter. Good morning. Thank you for braving the smoke. I wasn't sure um, how many of you might come, so I'm so glad to see so many of you. Um, as Pastor Peter said, my name is Ashley Coppin, and many of you know me, and some of you don't, so I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. I know you're already disappointed. I don't have an Australian accent. I'm sorry. Uh, I had to go to distant lands to find my husband. Um, I was actually born in Westlock and raised in this area, and Maddie and I met in 2005 when I was in Australia doing my diploma in youth and community work with an organization called Fusion. And then not long after Maddie and I, uh, well, I did about six years of uh, missions work in different places around the world. And then not long before, after Maddie and I got married, uh, we settled in Canada and Maddie began a role with the Father's House, which was over 10 years ago. And so I would like to uh, consider myself the, the faithful sidekick all those years to Maddie, but uh, you can ask him for yourself next time you see him. Um, and in the last five years, Maddie and I had the privilege of being uh, serving in Bon Accord at the Father's House with some really amazing people, and we're so thankful for that time. A little bit about me is that I'm best known for my obnoxiously loud laugh, my love of coffee, burning my children's grilled cheese sandwiches, and, um, and for crying when I speak in public. So don't worry, I have Kleenex, and uh, I won't cry too much this morning. So now that you know a little bit about me, um, let's keep going. Over this last year, it's been a time of transition, which it has been for many of us. And through that tra transition, it led me back to a bit of my missional heart uh, to be connected with the missions team in Morinville. And we've been meeting and talking about what it means to keep looking into our community and beyond when it comes to missions. And um, so that's what's brought me to this morning, sharing with you about hope and empathy. But before I go any further, I just really want to acknowledge that there is a lot of brokenness in our world today. I don't need to say anything to convince you of that. I think we all know that. So I just want to acknowledge that from the get-go, that even though we are kind of honing in on one specific issue, if we're not saying that it's more important than anything else, all these areas of injustice need tending to. But this morning and over the last few months, God's been putting on our heart to just to, ha to, to look at this one specific um, issue. And so that's what this morning's about. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, any of those things are any less important. And my hope is that as I share today, if, if part of you is saying, what about this other thing? And there is something stirring in you that you're open to whatever God has to say to you, maybe about that specific injustice that might be different to what we're talking about today. 
So I just trust that the Holy Spirit's going to work in each of us. Um, I really am a big believer that there is, that God gives us those specific, you know, passions and burning in our hearts, like the song says, for different things that our hearts break for when we look out into the world. So I encourage you not to ignore that as I share today. I'm just going to pray again, and then we'll keep going. Father, we're so thankful for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for um, your love for every single person on this earth, Father, that you know us all by name. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts, Father, that your your words and your heart would be known to us this morning and, and every day. We're just so thankful for this opportunity to gather, uh, for the beauty of our voices when they sing together, and we just pray that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pastor Greg started last week a series on hope, and uh, today again I have the privilege of talking to you about what it means to have hope in empathy. Pastor Greg's sister, uh, Teresa, some of you know her as a psychologist, and over the years we've had some really great chats. I love chatting with her about mental health and what it means to care for other people. And one of the authors she recommended to me was someone called Dr. Bruce Perry. He's a child psychiatrist. Um, and no, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't pretend to be. But I really love learning um, through the way the brain develops and just these different things that th that world has to inform us in. And so he actually has a book called Born for Love that he wrote with a lady named Maya. I'm sorry, I'm not even trying her last name. Um, and it's all about empathy. And so when Pastor Greg and I were talking about today being about hope and empathy, I said, oh, this is so good. It's my motivation to finish reading this book. So today we're going to be referring to it. Dr. Perry is not a Christian, but it's, it's that world acknowledging through research and experience these Christian values of community and empathy and compassion. So we're going to use it to inform us today on some things. And of course, we'll get into the word as well. Um, but I love having this deeper understanding of what it means for God to have made us just so uniquely. And that as we understand the way we develop, the way our minds work, the way, uh, again, that he's called us to live, as we understand it, I think that it helps us to know how to live out what he's calling us each to in, in a more full and, um, yeah, a more full way. So what is empathy? Why is it important? And how does it bring us and others hope? These are the three questions I just want to briefly touch on this morning. Then we're going to watch a video, um, and then we're going to talk a bit more about some things that are ahead that we want to invite you into. So according to the author, okay, so I have to put a disclaimer, the, the, word, the definitions I'm about to say are going to come up, but somehow the who said what got mixed up, so it might not be exactly, but the definite, just hear the definitions, okay? <laughs> according to the authors of Born for Love, the essence of empathy is the ability to stand in another's shoes, to feel what it feels like, to feel like there, what it feels like there, and to care about making it better if it hurts. Webster's Dictionary defines empathy as the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing in the feelings, thoughts, and experience of another, of either the past or present, without having the feelings, thoughts, and experience fully communicated in an objectively explicit manner. manner. 
Wikipedia defines it as empathy is the capacity to understand or feel another person, what another person is experiencing from within their frame of reference. That is the capacity to place oneself in another's position. So as we're seeing empathy is this idea that we're, we're able to enter into someone else's world and feel what it feels like for them. And I love how the one definition is talking about from their frame of reference. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit more. And the second one talking about how it doesn't actually necessarily get told or explained to you fully, but we have this capacity to still feel what someone else is feeling. So let's read a bit further in the book um, to help clarify some things for us. The word itself, empathy, was only coined in the early 1800s. It's a translation of the German, okay? We had a German person in the first service. Any Germans here want to say that word for me? Please, someone. Oh, there we go. I'm not going to repeat that, so thank you. Which means feeling into. Sympathy, with which empathy is often confused, conveys, some, conveys something of the same idea and previously carried the meaning today, which is given to empathy. The literal translation from the Greek root, Greek root of sympathy is feeling with. And it is here that a subtle but important difference between modern thinking on sympathy and empathy arises. When you empathize with someone, you try to see and, the world, see and feel the world from his or her perspective. Your primary feelings are more related to the other person's situation than your own. But when you sympathize, while you understand what others are going through, you don't necessarily feel it yourself right now, though you may be moved to help nonetheless. Pity or feeling sorry for someone similarly captures this idea of recognizing another's pain without simultaneously experiencing a sense of, a sense of it oneself. With empathy, however, you feel the other person's pain. You're feeling sorry with them, not just for them. So as we've looked at and seen defined, sympathy and empathy aren't the same thing. And I think sometimes we think that we have to have gone through the same thing as someone to be able to empathize with them. And I want to suggest that that's not true at all. That God gave us this ability to empathize with people, to feel someone's pain without having to have gone through the same situation as them. And I'd almost go as far as to suggest that having gone through the same thing as someone can actually sometimes get in the way because it means we're recalling our own situation and it kind of keeps us in the sympathy side of just feeling sorry for you. And that's not wrong or bad. That's, you know, that's a natural thing to happen that we recall our own situation. But I wonder if sometimes it gets in the way. Let's give an example. Sympathy might look like when a friend comes and shares with you that they just got into an argument with their spouse or their best friend and they're really upset. And so sympathy would probably, again, we've all been in conflict. We're going to think about, oh yeah, the fight I had last week with Maddie, or, you know, then my friend annoyed me. It's normal to recall those things. But sympathy means we sort of stay there. And I don't know about you, I know I'm guilty of it, but it, it kind of, it, you know, have you ever heard someone say, I know exactly how you feel? It's generally an indication that we're in that place of sort of feeling our own situation. But empathy is this scenario where that's probably gonna come up, but I can identify and say, yeah, 
I've gone through that before, and it's going to help me have a sense of what it might be like. But then it's going to actually put my own situation aside and be able to want to say, what does, what does this situation actually look like for them? What are they feeling? And to feel the pain or the suffering that they feel from their frame of reference, as it says. And it's not always a simple thing, but we have this capacity to do that. We were all born with the predisposition to love and care for others, to empathize. And what is so amazing is that God actually created us uh, from the very beginning uh, of our development to be able to empathize. Um, an example is from the way a baby, they call it mirror, mirror neurons. You know, when you look at a baby and you're sticking out your tongue and they, start to, they try to mimic it, that's actually some of the, the developmental things that are happening within our brain that eventually is about empathy. It's this ability to see and mirror and understand what's going on. Um, another example is the far too familiar situation for many of us if you've worked in the nursery where one baby starts crying and all the babies start crying. Yes. Well, don't be too quick to stop that <laughs> because this is actually a very important part of development where, again, before you can even name it for yourself or choose it, they're, they're identifying, they're saying, they're not okay, I'm not okay. <laughs> uh, we obviously mature in how we respond, but um, these are all important parts of our development um, and ultimately lead to how we are able to care and love for others. So why is empathy important? Although we're all born with the predisposition to care for others, According to Dr. Perry, empathy requires experience, which means I need to have received empathy and compassion, and I have had to, and I need to have practiced empathy and compassion. We are all capable, but for it to develop the parts of us that need to grow and flourish in this way, we need to practice it. We need to have experience. It's developed through, he says, a lifelong process of relational interaction. We were made for community and relationships. And this notion of empathy is the foundation of healthy, loving relationships and ultimately communities. When we experience empathy, which we've seen, we're wired to do from the very beginning, our ability to empathize is developed producing people who are loving, compassionate, empathetic people. But when we do not experience empathy as we develop and as a lifelong process, our ability to empathize is not woven into our character in its full potential, and in extreme cases, not at all. The word empathy doesn't actually appear in the Bible, but there are many examples of the concepts of empathy being lived out. So let's look to the word. Um, in Romans 12:15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. John 11.33.35 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Would you agree that these are biblical examples of empathy being lived out without the word explicitly used? Yeah. Empathy is also tied together with the commonly used biblical word compassion, 
not only is the word often used in the Bible, but it's actually used to describe the character of God. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Psalm 116.5 says, The Lord is gracious in righteousness. Our God is full of compassion. In the book, Empathy, being the pain we feel when we see others in pain and suffering, is described as the basis of compassionate action. And so to me, that means empathy is this like precursor to when to compassion that moves us to be compassionate to others. I want to look at a familiar story that most of you would know about the Good Samaritan. But I want to look at the first few verses that gives us a context about why Jesus is even telling that story. Luke chapter 10 says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, you know, good job. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, which, again, most of us know. A man is traveling along and he gets attacked by bandits and they beat him up and they, you know, they rob him and he's on the side of the road all cut up and half dead and all, all of the things stripped of him. And along the way comes a priest who, you know, sees and passes to the other side and keeps going. My version says, and then a temple assistant walks over and sees the hurt man and then crosses the road and keeps going. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And then Jesus asks him, which of the three was, um, was a neighbor? And we all know the answer, the good Samaritan, <laughs> the man who showed mercy. What I love about this story when it comes to empathy and compassion is that not only is God telling us, answering the question, who is our neighbor, which, who is our neighbor? Is it just the people I like? Is it just the person next door to me? No, it's everyone, even the people I don't like, even the people I disagree with. So he's telling us who our neighbor is, that's answering the question, or when he's telling us, love our neighbor as ourselves. But he's also giving us a picture of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. To bandage their wounds, to, you know, to bring resources, to, to clean his wounds. He gives him his own donkey, which would have meant a sacrifice of the man being carried while he had to walk to bring him somewhere safe where he took care of him and then paid for everything. It's this picture of what it looks like to, care, to love our neighbor. And do you, but do you think sometimes we need help to love people the way God's asking us to? <laughs> I know I do sometimes. And I believe that God gave us this ability to empathize so that no matter who our neighbor is, 
we can feel deeply for their suffering as if it were our own and be compelled to have compassion on them like the Good Samaritan, to want to move towards them, not to the other side of the road, and to do something to alleviate their pain and suffering, to help them be restored to life, to community, to move towards it. He used his time, his effort, and, and his resources to care for this person. So how does this give us and others hope? When we think of a world where healthy relationships and communities near and far are living as God commands, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, then we see this picture of you caring for me so deeply that you would do these things to help alleviate my pain and suffering. And I care for you so deeply that I'm willing to do things to alleviate and to help your pain and suffering. And we have this beautiful picture of a community and a world that's created where everyone is cared for. And I think that um, Philippians chapter 2 from verse 1 to 4 gives a picture of this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humil humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And because God is so good, it goes a level deeper. I love it. When we practice empathy and compassion for others, we're actually developing a part of us that only through that part of us being developed can we fully live out the calling and the life that God has for us. We were so made for community, for face-to-face -face loving interactions, that within healthy and loving relationships, we can actually find healing and wholeness and hope. Not only does being a part of this kind of community and relationships and caring for others near and far, increase our mental health and our happiness, it actually helps our physical health. More and more in the medical field, as the book talks about, they're acknowledging the fact that this relational health is so important to our physical health. And so often, you know, say we have cardiovascular problems, we go to the doctor and they talk about diet and medication, which is very important and all part of the equation. But Dr. Perry would actually uh, suggest that along with your diet and your medication, what should be prescribed is make two new friends and go visit your Aunt Jane more often. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That not only when we care for others and we're in these healthy relationships, we're, we're giving others the experience that they need to be fully themselves, but God makes us so that we too are healed and blessed and find wholeness and hope through these things. We know that um, this is the heart of God because sending Jesus to earth was the ultimate picture of empathy. It wasn't just this, you know, up high in the sky feeling sorry for us. Jesus came and lived with us and just in our skin to feel as we feel, to suffer the way we suffer. And going to the cross was the ultimate act of compassion that through that 
action of compassion, we were restored to the relationships and to the community that God had originally created us for. So we know that this is his heart. And I believe that as we care for our neighbors near and far, we're participating in God's kingdom being known here on earth. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of stuff I want to be a part of. Someone among us at age 10, uh, Elise Ferguson, Pastor um, Tyler's wife, we were actually at the legislature buildings, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we're walking by, and there was this board of all these faces, and I'm walking, and I glance over, and I'm like, wait a minute, I think I recognize that person. I get close, and it's Elise. Um, and so if you ever want to go see Elise, she's on a big board in the legisl- one of the legislature buildings, uh, and she was acknowledged for um, something she did as a young person. I'll, I'll explain. Her grandpa, Leo, had Parkinson's disease, and at age 10, he had struggled for 10, 20 years, but at age 10, she was old enough to realize how much it affected his life. And so she decided that she wanted to help, to make a difference. And so she started, at age 11, she decided that she would raise money. There's called the Super Walk for Parkinson's, and they were going to walk and raise money, but they weren't just going to do that. They brainstormed, and they decided they were also going to host grad sales, and all the proceeds would go to the Parkinson's Society. And so with the help of her mom, uh, she, she fundraised, and over a few years, Elise raised over $20,000 for Parkinson's. That's awesome. She was 11. And so um, I just want to celebrate what someone's heart, what someone's life can do. I'm sure there's many of you, even in this room and online, who have done similar things, have been a part of something where you saw something and you wanted to see it changed. So now we're going to look at a video of someone else. Um, This video is actually like almost 20 minutes long, but I only got so much time. So I'm going to show you 10 minutes, but I encourage you to go online on YouTube and watch the whole thing. It's a really great video. And so I really believe that this video is a picture of what a life that is moved by compassion can do. But not only what it can do for others, but the restoration that it also brought to his own life. And so I'm going to give you the heads up, though. After the video, I'm going to invite you to to respond, to say a word, a sentence. What impacted you? What stood out to you about this video? I want to hear your voice. For the people online, Michaela will be there. She'd love to hear your responses. And for those of us in the room, we're just going to hear your voice for a minute. Um, So be thinking about that as you watch. So let's watch this video. My name is Scott Harrison. (laughs) Just listen. This is my wife, my son, and my one on the way. I lead an organization called Charity Water, and our mission is to bring clean water to everyone on the planet. I live in New York City now, but I didn't always. I grew up in suburbia, and this was my house. My dad was a businessman, and my mom was a writer. They loved each other, and they loved me. We were a happy family, until we weren't. When I was four years old, my mom collapsed on the bedroom floor. We'd just moved into a new house, and our house had a carbon monoxide gas leak, but none of us knew it until then. 
She didn't die that day, but her immune system did. She became allergic to everything. Perfume, the ink from books, radio waves. She wore strange masks all the time and was often connected to oxygen. The toxic gas destroyed her immune system and in a way, my childhood too. After the poisoning, our roles reversed and I began to take care of her. As the only child, I had to be a good one. I learned to cook, do laundry and take care of the house. I was a good Christian kid who played piano in church and wanted to be a doctor when I grew up to help sick people like her. Until I turned 18. Music was my escape, so I joined a band and moved to New York. Um, right about the time when the band broke up, I got involved in um, producing these like live music shows in the city. I realized that you could actually get paid in New York City to drink alcohol for free. This job was called a nightclub promoter. So you just had to get beautiful people in the clubs. And if you got the right people in the clubs, you could charge guys $500 to buy a bottle of champagne that cost you 40. I moved from club to club to club, filling up the VIP section and flashing my Rolex to the club photographers. For almost 10 years after that, I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day and was out drunk almost every night. I was into strip clubs, gambling, and just about every drug except heroin. On New Year's Eve, uh, we all went to Punta del Este. Uh, it's a kind of party town in Uruguay. We rented this incredible house with cooks, waiters, and magnums of expensive champagne. Although it looked glamorous on the outside, there was a long decline in happiness. And I remember just feeling so unhealthy about it all. The next day, the party was still going, but I wanted the music to stop. I realized I was spiritually bankrupt, I was emotionally bankrupt, I was certainly morally bankrupt. I tried to find my way back to a very lost faith. I wanted things to be different. I left nightlife, sold almost everything I owned, and decided to take one year off to try serving others instead of myself. I'm applying, I'm filling out these long applications for these very credible humanitarian organizations that have long histories. I put in the applications, and then I wait. And I guess I should not have been surprised, but I am denied by all of these organizations. They won't even let me volunteer because of my past. So they're like, what do you do again? <laughs> We're serious people. <laughs> Thankfully, one organization says, if you pay us $500 a month, you can volunteer with us. So I said, here are my credit card details. Where are you guys going? They were an amazing team of doctors and surgeons who traveled the world on a hospital ship. They specialized in removing facial tumors, and they were going to Liberia, one of the poorest countries in the world, and a country I'd never even heard of. I say, I'm going to sign up and be your volunteer photojournalist. I'd always taken pretty good pictures and photos and loved telling stories. Everything in my life changed. I decided in one fell swoop to kind of never smoke again, to never touch drugs again, you know, to never gamble again, to, you know, to swear off pornography and strip clubs and just, I needed to walk so far in the other direction. And I walked up this gangway and this became my new home. 
Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to see. Hi, my name is Scott. I think we may be able to help you. I met a man named Harris. He was suffocating to death with a benign tumor. I got to see Harris's transformation because of an amazing surgeon named Dr. Gary Parker. So we, we've got to get your blood nice and strong for an operation, huh? Dr. Gary had moved his entire family on the ship to volunteer for a short time. That was 29 years ago. He just never left. I'd never met anyone with that kind of dedication before. Very happy we can uh, schedule and he'll spend Christmas here. First, uh, first good Christmas in 13 years. <laughs> A couple weeks later, I got to take Harris back home to his village with an entirely new face, ready to start a new life. The uniform that's put on people when you have these terrible deformities is you're rubbish, you're worthless, you're spiritually cursed, you're... And when you can change the uniform, huge and the person starts to imagine that they might not be rubbish after all no one in our world is rubbish there was one day when more than 5,000 sick people came to see our doctors some of them had walked for more than a month but there were too many of them and we just didn't have enough doctors I remember holding my camera crying we had to turn thousands away we were changing individual lives every day, but I wanted to do even more. I'm documenting these life-changing surgeries, but I started to spend more and more time out in the rural villages. And as I would travel around these villages, I would see the most shocking things. About 475 people living here. And this is what they're drinking. You can see there's bugs crawling around in it. I'm sort of putting this together, saying, look, thousands of people are turning up sick, and the most basic need for health isn't even met. It wasn't okay. Kids shouldn't be drinking from scummy swamps or ponds or rivers. He came here to fetch water yeah. and a crocodile filled into the river and a crocodile snatched him. He disappeared not, not even a bull was not even found. There were so many diseases caused by bad water. Cholera, dysentery, trachoma, bilharzia, things I'd never even heard of. On top of that, I found out people weren't just drinking this filthy water, they were breaking their backs to get it. Women and girls are usually the ones responsible, often walking for hours every day. As a result, many girls never make it through school. They trade in their education and dreams to carry 40-pound jerry cans so their families can have water. Dirty water is responsible for more death in the world than all forms of violence, including war. Even if it were a million people, this would be a crisis. But it's not one million. It's 785 million people who live on our planet right now without access to clean water. That's twice the population of the United States. Nearly one in 10 people worldwide. Behind those statistics were real lives, people who were dying because they couldn't get clean water. And many of them were children. 
I began to become really interested in the, the water issue and who was doing something about this. How come more people weren't talking about water? I came back to New York City ready to go. So I started with a party. It's the only thing I knew how to do. I was a nightclub promoter. So I got someone to donate a club. I threw my 31st birthday party. I got 700 people to come out. I lured them with open bar. And I charged them 20 bucks at the door. And this time, instead of pocketing the $15,000, we took it immediately to a refugee camp in northern Uganda. We built three wells. We fixed three wells. And then we sent the photos and the GPS and the story back to those 700 people. This was a big deal. People could not believe that a charity would bother to report to them on a $20 gift, and that something actually happened with the money that they could see, that they could connect with. 700 people proved that we could make a difference, even $20 at a time. This was the beginning of Charity Water. So before we, you know, keep talking about what's ahead, I just, like I said, I want to give you the chance to respond. For those of you online, Michaela's there and would love to hear your responses. But what stood out to you? What impacted you? A word or a sentence? Sorry? Yeah, it's hard on people. For others. Sympathy. Sympathy. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to get there. For others. Pardon? Honesty? Yeah, yeah. He's pretty vulnerable to share his story. Anyone else? Yeah. 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 He found purpose and empathy. Amen. Yeah, he was he used the resources that he had and what he knew how to do for sure. Pretty creative. Anyone else? Sorry? Dedication, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. The depth of his despair. Yeah. For others, is that what you said? Became hope for others. Amen. Totally. Uh, she's heard other, um, uh, more of his story, right? And it's pretty awesome. 
there's, there's lots online if you're curious to watch more, for sure, about his story and the story of Charity Water as well. So thank you for responding. I'd love to hear your voices and the way this impacted you. Um, as we saw from the moment that, you know, he realized this was happening, he wanted to make a difference. And um, it didn't take long for him to realize, he started to allude to it, that he says later on in the video that 42% of Americans don't trust charities. And so they made three bold promises uh, when they started this organization. The first was that 100% of the money that they, that's donated to water goes to water. And so they've opened up two separate bank accounts where the money that's donated to water goes in one account and anything else like uh, rent, staffing, travel, all of that is covered by generous donors. So none of the money that's given to water is ever touched for other administration things. The second bold promise is that, like he said in the video, they prove every project. So they put, they take pictures, they put GPS mapping, and they also put sensors on the well so that they can see that the water, that the project is still working and how much clean water is flowing over time. And the third thing is that they believe that for the work to be sustainable, that it has to be led by locals. And so they find local people to, to keep um, going with the work and to maintain the projects. And from these promises, um, it, I love it, again, his wife, they talk about how they just started. They're just like, we didn't know what we were doing. We just, we just started moving forward. And, you know, what a small group of friends can do when you have a passion for something. They started raising awareness by, they're in New York where it's like rich and ritzy and they'd get these, you know, taking over advertisements where they'd have like a baby bottle or a drinking bottle with the dirty water in it and it would say things like, at the time, 4,500 people will die today from unclean water. You know, starting to just tell the story, to get the word out there, for people to think differently. Um, they, they had like walk for, they would stage walks for waters, um, and people just started to take notice. And one of the things that's really cool is that it, it began a movement of birthdays where people were like, I don't need more stuff. I don't need things. I'm going to give my birthday and, you know, what I would have gotten, that money is going to go towards Charity Water. And so there's stories of, you know, seven-year-olds going door-to-door -door asking for $7 for their, you know, their seventh birthday or someone who was 21 who maybe would have had a party. They gave that money. And so it's this whole movement of birthdays and it's really cool. Kids raising thousands of dollars. But then some people didn't want to wait till their birthday. We're like, well, we're inspired. We want to do something now. So, you know, men shaving their beards for money. And I know all the men are like, shh, don't give my wife ideas. Um, they're like, oh, this is a good idea, honey. Uh, you know, climbing mountains, lemonade stands, giving up Christmas, just whatever they could do to be creative, to tell the story and to raise money for something that just became on their hearts. And so uh, they, have, they have made... Uh, they have done 50,000 water projects, and which has given 11 million people clean water. Isn't that awesome? 11 million people. Yeah. But the, the sad, not sad, yeah, it is sad. 
The challenge is that even 11 million people having clean water now only scratches the surface. Did you take note of how many people he said in the video? 785 million people still go without clean water. The website says 1,400 people will die today just from dirty water. Their goal is to raise money and to build these projects until they can say that no one on earth is going to die of dirty water. That's their goal. And I love in one of the videos, he's like, you know what? And when this is done, we'll just go on to the next thing. But he, his goal is to work until uh, they've achieved that goal. And so, like we've already heard, a good idea. Uh, we want to help. We want to be a part of this movement. And like I said, there's many things you know, in this world that are unjust that we could give to, but we wanted to start somewhere. This was on our heart to just practice our empathy, to be moved to compassion, to begin this. And I hope that you're inspired. If you're feeling heartbroken, you know, God's putting something else on your heart, move in that direction. Be like the lady who's like, I didn't know what I was doing. We just move there. And it's amazing how God shows up. He says in the one video that, um, you know, they had lots and lots of money in the water uh, account. You know, people were donating. But in the admin account, uh, for all these other things, they were running out. And they, and they were starting to become, it was, it was a problem. They were really worried. And he said, one day, a man walked in off the street and wrote a million-dollar check. And now his goal is to be able to one day <laughs> walk in off the street somewhere and write a million-dollar check. So God shows up when his will is being done. So we're going to do a walk for water. I know. This is just a tease because you don't get a t-shirt. I get a t-shirt. But I'm going to show you anyways. Pastor Tyler's so great. He makes me nice things. We're going to do a walk for water. We have set a goal um, of raising... Oh, do you like it? First... Da, 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 da. Um, we're going to walk six kilometers. We set a goal of $10,000. That is one water project. Um, and we want you to come and walk with us on Saturday, August 28th. Put on a blue shirt. We're going to have stickers. So put a sticker on if you want. And we're going to walk. And our walking is empathy. Our walking really is for us to say, this is happening in the world and it's not okay. It means we can talk about it. You know, why are all these people walking with blue shirts? It's an excuse to, to think and to tell the story. And so how it's going to work is um, out in the foyer, there's these cards. And so they call them campaigns. The Father's House has started a campaign on the Charity Water website for us to raise the $10,000. And so, again, this kind of awareness raising, it's about telling the story. You can go door to door if you want, but it's not about gathering people's money because we have a www.walkforwatercanada.com, and if you go there, it's gonna, you're going to find the link that takes you straight to the campaign where you can donate. This here, um, if you take your camera phone, you know how you do that with it? I'm not very techy either, but, um, and it brings it up with your, cam with your camera, and it'll take you straight to the link, okay? So the campaign is there, ready to go. And so we just want to... We want to share the story. We want to say, hey guys, there's, 
this is happening and it's not okay. We want to do something about it. We want to help to bring hope and alleviate some of their pain and suffering. The Christian school has already started for us. The kids, um, before school ended, walked six kilometers, some of them with water the whole time, carrying water. I know, Mrs. Schmirko, she's hardcore. It's awesome. Walked with water on their backs. It's so good. Um, and so they've made a start for us, and, and we're going to keep going. We want you to think about what creative ways can you, can you gather some change at our house uh, my daughters, I have two wonderful daughters, they found that they were watching the video one day, same thing as me, the ad came on, you think, oh, that's annoying, click away the commercial, and next thing you know, you're like, what's he talking about, that's cool, and so they were drawn into the video, and at the end of it, Alyssa said, I want to give up my birthday, and so Alyssa gave up her birthday this year, all the money she got for her birthday, she put in a jar, and now we've been adding change, and you know, whenever we think of it, we just put a little bit, and, um, and we're gonna take our bottles that, we're, that we have to the recycling, and that money's gonna go in there. So that's kind of, and it's amazing how it adds up. But what I wanna say is that it all counts. It all helps. $5, $10, whatever it is, it's about us practicing this as much as it is about building a well. <laughs> and we know that God's gonna do great things through it. So do you have a jar? If you want, get a sticker when they're ready, put it on it, maybe it'll be a conversation starter in your house to just tell the story. And I just really believe God's already working in people's hearts. You know, I shared this with a friend not that long ago, and she's like, we were just talking about wanting to give to something like this. It's awesome. Um, and the, awesome, the great thing is that once the project is done, in 12 to, so once we've raised the $10,000, then in 12 to 18 months, once they've built the project, then they will send us pictures, GPS coordinates, how many people are getting clean water, and we can celebrate all that God did through, through this. Um, so my hope today is not only that you felt empathy and compassion for these millions of people, I can't even say, for these millions of people, but that you will just see this essential need for compassion and empathy in our world, big and small. God wants us to live this way every single day. And that as we do that, his heart is expressed in our communities, in our families, and in the world. And I just pray that as you look into the world or as God has prompted you today, that you would be willing to say yes to whatever he's inviting you to. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the abundant resources that we have here, Father. And life isn't simple for all for many of us, God, and you see that and know that, but we're so thankful that you're so good that even in our hardships, Father, when we reach out to others, you bring hope, you bring healing, and you bring life. So, Father, I pray that um, our hearts would continue to burn <laughs> like a fire, Father, as the song says, and that we would just continue to move towards you with our eyes fixed on you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for your hope. Amen. Please get a card um, out in the foyer. They look like this. They're all around. The other thing I didn't do, if you want to have a bit of empathy, this is 40 pounds of water. This is 40 pounds, which is what they would carry, and plus who knows what. That's, this is what they have to carry and break their backs over. 
to get water, sometimes several times a day. So on your way by, if you wanna have a little feel to see what that's like, just give a little lift, that's there for you, and grab a card. Thank you so much.